0: Mm-hmm. Ah! Oh. Welcome to Radio Film School, Shortens. These are mini documentary episodes about all things cinema to hold you over into the next episode of the main series, A Filmmaker's Journey. If you want to know the origin of the term short ends, check the website. Enjoy. Greetings and salutations, all you space cadets out there. Before we blast off, I want to say a quick thanks to our sponsor, Song Freedom. You need great music for your productions. Sometimes you even need Mainstream music. Well, there's one place where you can get both. Song Freedom. They have tunes from every genre of music, even Mainstream tunes, as well as oldies but goodies. And if you sign up for a free account at songfreedom.com radio, you'll unlock a free standard gold-level license worth $30. That's songfreedom.com radio. We thank Song Freedom for their support. Lastly, after the credits, we have a special announcement and trailer you won't want to miss. So stick around. G1, take 10. Marker. Engage. Growing up as a kid, I was a huge fan of Star Trek. It had only lived on CBS for a mere three seasons. Ironically, two years less than the famous five-year mission of the Starship Enterprise. But in syndication, it became a bona fide hit. My brother and I would plop down in front of the television set and watch those syndicated episodes after getting home from school. What started as a forward-thinking yet failed television series grew to become one of the most beloved sci-fi franchises in the world. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Star Trek's 1966 original television premiere. And since that time, there have been five television series, with a new one in the works, an animated series, countless conventions, and 13 feature films, including the latest installment from Fast and Furious director Justin Lin, Star Trek Beyond. Another staple of the Star Trek universe have been fan films, a ton of fan films. Some are god-awful, filled with terrible effects and even worse acting. But others are on a level that some would say rival what you see on the big screen. Nearly a year before Star Trek Beyond's release, there was another feature-length Star Trek film in pre-production. It was one of those fan films, but this is a fan film unlike any other made in the Trek universe. It raised a whopping $1.2 million in crowdfunding and would star recognizable actors from various sci-fi films and television shows. And it was the first fan film to land itself in the middle of a veritable David and Goliath battle. When last December, CBS and Paramount, the owners of Star Trek, slapped a lawsuit on the makers of this fan film. Something they had never done before. A lawsuit that may have precedent-setting consequences for this and all fan films. From here on out to Stardate 2245.1. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Short Ends. Fan films have been around for a long time. It's hard to say when
1: they actually came into being. Where do you even begin when it comes to the first fan film ever made?
0: That's Radio Film School co-producer Chris Husledge.
1: I mean, you can't even say first ever, since that would require knowing exactly who and when some person in some country made a film spoofing or ribbing their favorite film at that time. The best we can do is say the earliest known or recorded by someone in the history books.
0: You could argue that that honor falls on the shoulders of a silent 1925 short made in Anderson, South Carolina, called Anderson's Own Gang Comedy, an homage to the popular Little Rascals Our Gang films by
1: Hal Roach. One can imagine that there are probably more fan films going on in between then and the 1970s, but in the 70s is when everything changed. That change? The sci-fi convention. Though science fiction conventions have been going on since the 40s, it wasn't until the 70s that making fan films and showing them off to crowds really began to pick up steam. Technology was reaching more of the masses in the 80s as more and more people started getting their hands on camcorders and beta machines. What a beta machine is, I have no idea, but I had to look it up online to see a picture of it. But it was also at this time that fans began to see a slew of films that they would want to make their own films about such as Star Trek, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Alien, basically any horror film out there.
0: Since that time, the community of fan filmmakers has only grown, along with the technology, the conventions, and even the internet, which now allows people to share their films with millions of potential viewers around the world. And with the growth of the community came the growth of capability.
1: As Ron likes to say, he doesn't care what you shoot it on. If the story sucks, it all sucks. I like to add to that and say, if you don't have passion for what you're filming, it shows in your film. And these fans began throwing themselves into these films with as much passion as you could ever imagine, creating vast background stories, main storyline for the characters, potential storylines for future episodes for series. Not only did some fans make standalone films, but they began making web series based on their favorite films and shows. But even passion can't save everything. Recently, some of these fan films have come under attack by parent production companies that own the rights to some of these stories, characters, or even universes that the fan films were taking part in.
0: You're absolutely right, Chris. A few years ago, famed music video director Joseph Kahn and producing partner Adi Shankar made a Power Rangers fan film that racked up millions of views. But YouTube and Vimeo were compelled to take down their respective versions by order of Saban Entertainment due to copyright violation. There was a huge uproar on the internet over the whole situation as people on both sides of the argument debated whether or not Khan's film won was protected by fair use, and two, could even qualify as a fan film given not only the extremely high production values, but also the star talent involved. It starred recognizable actors like Dawson's Creek James Vanderbeek and Battlestar Galactica's Katie Sackhoff.
2: You're still a traitor, you worthless piece. We
0: were children
3: asked to fight an intergalactic war against an enemy we'd never met. Let's stop pretending our side stood on
0: some moral high ground. Eventually, Saban and Khan came to an arrangement allowing them to reinstate the NSFW version of the film. Check out the blog post of this episode if you want to see it. Luckily, Khan and Shankar never had to go to court. But as I alluded to in the opening of this episode, one fan film creator may not be so lucky.
4: What's amazing about this lawsuit is we were forced to fight it. It doesn't seem like they wanted a settlement right away.
0: That's Robert Maya Burnett. Robert is a 25 plus year veteran of Hollywood. He's a member of the Directors Guild of America, a writer, producer, editor, and frequent co-host of the popular Collider Videos YouTube channel. He's also a bonafide, tried-and-true Star Trek fan, and director of the fan film I mentioned at the top of the episode. That fan film is called Star Trek X
4: And the lawsuit just keeps getting more and more interesting. It's all about copyright and fair use, and now uh, an outside agency... Wrote an amicus brief about the Klingon language and how the Klingon language can't be copywritten, which is comes out that comes out in favor that we're in favor of that. And our lawyers wrote. Paramount said they wanted to dismiss this amicus brief, and then our lawyers just dropped a defense of the amicus brief. So there's outside people that are getting involved in this fan film lawsuit. So it's it's definitely precedent setting, and it is it is setting Hollywood history.
0: Although Star Trek fan films have been made for years, CBS and Paramount have never lifted a finger to stop them.
3: Gene Roddenberry wrote a, uh, a foreword to Star Trek uh, New Voyages where he said, you know, thank goodness for the fans.
0: That's Jonathan Lane, a blogger at FanFilmFactor.com, speaking on the Entertainment YouTube channel for Reason.TV.
3: The first really hardcore Star Trek fan film was 1973. In 1985, fan filmmaker in Los Angeles actually got George Takei to play Sulu in his fan film. There was this amazing proliferation of Star Trek fan films that started. There was Starship Exeter, there was Starship Farragut, Uh, Project Potemkin, Star Trek of Gods and Men starred, amongst other people, Walter Koenig playing Chekhov, Nichelle Nichols playing Uhura. Eventually, you had huge productions like Star Trek Renegades, where it was a 90-minute movie. They had a Westwood theater premiere. The fan films were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: like the outcome of this will have a profound uh, impact on the the future of fan films in general
4: yeah I mean here's my thought about it I mean honestly we were making fan films under the assumption that CBS turned a blind eye they didn't really care like all Star Trek has been saved by the fans in 1968 book or 67 the letter-writing campaign brought the 68 69 season to fruition, Star Trek fans have always been passionate supporters of the Star Trek franchise. They're always first in line to go see Star Trek movies. It was never anyone's intent to step on the toes of Paramount or CBS or their copyrights. We just want to make a kick-ass Star Trek fan film. That's all, that's all we wanted to do, with a, a professional sheen to it.
0: So here we have all these fan films over the years, some even starring iconic cast members from their original series and CBS and Paramount have been silent. So why now? Why has Axenar been the target for the first ever lawsuit against a Star Trek fan film? Well, there could be a few reasons. First, as I said, they raised over a million dollars. Second, if made, it too will star recognizable actors. Names you may not necessarily recognize, but you would definitely recognize the actors' faces once you saw them people like Tony Todd, Kate Vernon, Cary Graham, and even Richard Hatch as a Klingon warlord. You may recall that Hatch played Apollo in the original Battlestar Galactica 70's TV show. And he rose to prominence again, playing the scheming and Machiavellian politician Tom Zarek on the critically acclaimed Sci-Fi Channel remake.
4: You know, I do think Paramount responded to the quality of the script, and the quality of what we'd already put out there, and the fact that we'd raised so much money. I mean, they had to protect... They're copyright because they have a new Star Trek series coming out, and they have a new Star Trek motion picture in theaters in July. And I think that they they might have been bewildered or blindsided by our effort. And once they saw what we were trying to do, I think it was like, well, we're, we don't. This is some. This is a headache. We don't need. And rather than they 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 went to the nuclear option to sort <laughs> of make an example out of us. I also think it's 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 because we made a feature. We said we were making a feature film. As
0: opposed to like a short.
4: Yeah. 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 I don't think they would pretty much care because they've not requested Prelude to Axanar
0: be pulled down. The new Federation ships were unexpected. Here Rob is referring to the short film Prelude to Axanar. It was the predecessor to the feature-length version of Axanar that's currently embroiled in this lawsuit. Prelude is an amazing, extremely high-quality fan film. You can go to the blog post for this episode to see the 21-minute short. It's quite a feat. It represents the level of quality and production that would go into the feature film version of Axanar. It's set up as a series of interviews with humans, Vulcans, and Klingons, all telling their respective accounts of the battle known as the Four Years' War. Here's Rob again began to explain.
4: FASA, which was a gaming company in the 80s, did a Star Trek role-playing game. And they had a module called the Four Years' War that was about the first conflict between the Klingons and the Federation that's, that's non-canonical. But it was really interesting if you were a fan of that role-playing game. And they tried to make, the people at FASA tried to write these things as if they were canon. So Alec had that to draw from. So his idea was that Garth was sort of the the Battle of Axenar. They brought up – Axenar is mentioned a couple of times in passing in the original series. But FASA hooked on Axanar as a place uh, where this, the Battle of Axenar was fought because uh, it's mentioned a few times. And then in Star Trek Enterprise, we actually meet people from Axanar.
0: Hmm, interesting.
4: So, so it was Alex's idea to make Garth the hero of Axenar and take all of these various elements, Star Trek canon – The FASA role-playing game, you know, Enterprise, Star Trek novels, and pull them together in this original story about the war between the Klingons and the Federation that we have yet to see. They've mentioned various conflicts throughout Star Trek history, the original series, and things like that, but they've never actually talked about a real four-years war within canon. But we figured, well, it took place 21 years before the original series started, so... We've just never really heard about it. We've never seen it. So why don't we delve into
1: that?
5: It was like a Klingon maneuver.
1: It was a new ship.
0: They said she was tough.
3: I want to see what she could take.
0: I talked to show regulars J.D. and Yolanda Cochran about this topic. J.D. being an indie filmmaker and diehard sci-fi geek himself, and Yolanda's background dealing with intellectual property issues from her days as Executive VP of Physical Production at Alcon Entertainment, I thought the two of them would have a good perspective. How far should copyright holders allow fans to go with their copyrights?
2: I think the great majority, 99.99% of them, are really just serving to keep interest in the property and serving, you know, the the inter- the the financial interest of the of the rights holders because it's keeping it in the awareness, it's keeping people excited about it, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously the people are doing it because they're so enthusiastic about the material. Mm-hmm. So unless they're making, you know, a significant amount of money that otherwise would be going into the pockets of the rights holders I don't see any problem with it I think it's a benefit
5: yeah frankly yeah I guess I guess the question would be like how is it hurting the franchise because if it's hurting the franchise in some way then maybe there's you know then maybe there should be some guidelines but I I would wonder let's say you made a Star Trek you know this, this Star Trek what if it's only 15 minutes long you know, like like a lot of Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars, they have a whole Star Wars fan awards festival.
0: Did you hear that? Star Wars, arguably the most profitable and famous of all sci-fi franchises, that only allows the making of fan films, but even has a festival and fan film competition with awards and everything. They literally encourage the making of fan films. When we return after the break, we'll hear what was ostensibly a beacon of hope for the Axnar team, and we'll hear about the solution that CBS and Paramount developed to help fan films. Are you ready for a laugh? Stay with us. We recently finished season 1 of the show, and Song Freedom was a huge sponsor. They're sponsoring us again, and we're very thankful. <laughs> One of the features that's great about Song Freedom is that you can quickly and easily add song selections to collections, allowing you to save songs that you really like. Perfect when you're working on a project and gathering possible song candidates. Go to songfreedom.com radio and sign up for a free account, and you'll unlock a standard co-level license for $30. You can help support us when you support our sponsors. Second, now that Season 1 is done, We're hard at work at season two, and the theme of which is Against All Odds. Stories of filmmakers overcoming great odds to get their productions made. Maybe you had massive logistical challenges on set that almost killed your production. Maybe finding the time to balance work and life was a challenge. Or maybe you had this one shot that you just had to get, and your own ego and obsessive compulsion for perfection got in the way. Then again, maybe you raised way too much money during a crowdfunding campaign and a network studio slapped a lawsuit on you. If you have a story you think would be valuable for people to hear on the show, shoot me an email at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm and tell me about it. We just may connect with you and have you and your story on the show.
5: Everything that happens... With these companies, especially with the studios and the networks in a lot of ways, you know, everything is predicated on fear.
0: That's Richard Botto, aka RB. He's founder and CEO of Stage 32, often referred to as the LinkedIn of the entertainment industry, with over 600,000 members. RB is pretty connected in the biz and provides some valuable insight into this topic himself.
5: The reason why you have no originality is because they want. As much as they can sure things because they're beholden to stockholders. So there is this big, big push to protect IP. It really comes down, what everything, this whole entire thing comes down to really is um, state of mind in a way. And, and the reason I say that is because you're right. These fam films have been made forever. Um, some companies look at it like free advertising. They say, wow, why why wouldn't we want it, especially if the, if there's no profiting happen, which is the key thing, of course, right? Sure. And this is helping them, their brand get exposure and their IP get exposure to a new audience or re engage an audience that, you know, maybe has been lying dormant for years because yeah. that's today new material. You have to think to yourself, wow, you know, why why wouldn't I want that? But yeah. then you look at the other side of this thing and you say, Okay. Profits are harder than, you know, to come by than ever. Movies are more, well, and this is the studio's fault as well. You know, movies are getting more expensive than ever. The marketing for movies is more expensive than ever. Now you have all these streaming outlets, you have all these things going on where the independent movement is certainly back in full swing. Independent films and television are stealing eyeballs from studio pictures. So I think that there is this, in this particular case, I think there is this Overprotection of the IP simply because they don't want it. it could, and it could be one of two things. And again, I can't pretend to know what goes on in the meetings with the attorneys and everything, but it could be one or two things or both. It could be, we don't want the, the IP diluted in any way, or we don't want the IP and, you know, infringed upon in any way because we need to protect it for every single thing that we do. And we mean, we, we need to make sure that every bit of profitability comes from our efforts. Right. I get that as a business guy, I completely get it. I mean, I have, I'm kind of in not a unique position, but, um, semi unique from the standpoint that, you know, I run a business, but I'm a creative. And mm-hmm. so I, I see sometimes, you know, when things are infringed upon or have been infringed upon in the past, even like when I said, when I ran the when the, when I ran the magazine, we had to become litigious because even though I could look at it, you know, from a way of Hey, you know, this is kind of cool because they're really extending the razor. That was the name of the magazine was razor. They're really kind of extending the razor brand and bringing the razor brand out there. I had to worry about a dilution of the brand, how the brand was being presented, because you can only control so much. Right. You know what I mean, you really can only control when somebody else is kind of using your IP, even if it is, there's nothing but good intentions there is a possibility that it spirals out of the out of control where you where where you can't control any of the messaging or how it's being perceived or what's being done sort of the bases the you know the existing ip the characters and mm-hmm. storylines and everything like that so i get where they're coming from look the fans are, are not going to look at the the legal so i'm not talking about the people made the film but the people that are of course going to defend the filmmakers, you right, know, right. they're they're gonna they're not gonna look at the legalities or the, or the potential of money loss or the, or you know any of the infringement uh, issues at all. They're just gonna say, you know, what a bunch of greedy, you know, <laughs> right. greedy mothers, right? Right. So the you know what it, for me, what it would come down to if I was if I was kind of heading this thing up is I would say, look, this is fine. The legal part of it, let's let's handle it the way we need to handle it. But from a PR standpoint, we need to really. You know, not be so sterile, not be so, um, not look like there's 40 lawyers behind the statement that we're putting out. Let's go out there and, you know, make a statement about the quality of the filmmakers and you know and and why, why why you know why we're doing this. Get people to understand a little bit better because everything that I've read and everything that I've seen and I think there were just a couple of articles over the last few days that I saw in the trades. I mean, it's it's true. David and Goliath to me, you know, right. it's, it's, there's no reason to be that way, especially in this day and age where perception really is everything and where you can lose the battle on social media and thereby lose a, a legion of fans rather quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it takes tremendous hubris to think that you can't, you know, that you can't lose fans just because of the history of the brand. I definitely think you can. And I don't think it's a game that you really want to play. I think you know you want to build your audience, not alienate it. So I think that their response so far has been a little bit sterile and uh, could definitely, certainly, be massaged in a way. And again, it could probably be even solved in a way that creates a win-win for everybody.
4: It, it, a lot of Prelude Axar, we made up. Like those characters, we made them up. Yeah, we use Silval again and. Yes, we, we have a Captain Garth, but it's not the Captain Garth from whom gods destroy. Mm-hmm. It's our vision of what he might have been when he was in his prime. So that's, that was an extrapolation. And all the ship designs, aside from, yes, we do have uh, the Enterprise being built originally, but our hero ships and all those things, those are things that were designed by us. So people are like, if we are selling our, the USS Ares in our donor store, you know, donors can donate and they get a perk if they want a model kit of the Ares, that's not something Paramount or CBS would go after us because it's not a Star Trek trademark or copyright. It's something we made up. There's countless companies that make unauthorized Star Trek models, but they don't—they won't make a model of the USS Defiant. Right. They'll say whatever the class of the Defiant is. You know, they'll call it, whatever, this class, you know, and so it's not copyright, but it is clearly the Defiant. It's just that You know, no one's gone after them before, um, because they're not calling it the Defiant. So that's how we're, we've never been received a cease and desist for anything we have in our donor store, because it's all stuff that we've made up.
0: Five months after the announcement of the lawsuit, there seemed to be a glimmer of hope in this predicament, when, at a Star Trek fan event, J.J. Abrams, the man who revived Star Wars and Star Trek, made this announcement.
5: Few months back, there was uh, a fan movie action um, art that uh, was getting made, and there was this like lawsuit that happened uh, between the studio and these fans. And Justin and uh, I need to tell the story because uh, he uh was sort of outraged by this as a longtime fan. And uh, we started talking about it, realized that this was not you know an appropriate way to deal with the fans. The fans should be celebrating this thing, like you're saying right now. We all, fans of Star Trek, are are part of this world and so um, you went to the studio and pushed them to stop this lawsuit and and now uh, within the next few weeks it will be announced this is going away and fans will be able to work on your company.
0: Ah, all's well that ends well. Cue triumphant music. In fact, right after JJ's announcement, the Axanar team released a statement thanking JJ for the support, but reiterating that the case was still going strong.
4: We submitted our motion to dismiss, which they've had, they've rebutted, and then we did our final rebuttal to their rebuttal, and it's gone to the judge. So the judge now has probably six weeks to decide on any of our, we have three motions to dismiss that the judge will decide upon. And we have to, if they, they might dismiss part of the suit because Axnar hasn't even been made yet. So how do you sue it for copyright violations?
0: Right. You haven't done anything yet.
4: And, yeah, you know, we haven't made it. So if the judge is like, well, that's, that's kind of true. He might throw that out. And that's a huge part of the case. Then all that remains are this Vulcan scene I directed. And then, and then prelude to Axenar, which could be covered under fair use. We gave prelude to Axenar away. Does it damage the franchise, which is something they have to... I don't think so.
0: Right.
4: I mean, I think it it shows a great love and respect for Star Trek. And 47 Film Festival Awards and 2.5 million views on YouTube would seem to support that.
0: Yeah. This interview with Burnett was recorded on May 5th. Five days later, the Axanar blog reported that the judge denied their motion to dismiss and as of now, a trial date is set for January 2017. As a way to appease the fans, CBS and Paramount did develop a set of guidelines for fan films. But the fan community, and any reasonable person, pretty much sees these guidelines as an insult and comically restrictive. Here's Radio Film School producer Chris Hustled again.
1: The guidelines basically rip out the heart of most large productions like Axanar. Some of the guidelines included that the films couldn't be any longer than 15 minutes for a self-contained episode. The fan films could not use the word Star Trek in their titles, but they needed to have a card that stated it was a Star Trek fan production. It had to be all new material. Films could not use clips from previous Star Trek films, shows, movies, whatever. Fan productions couldn't use any actor, director, producer, or personnel that had ever worked on a Star Trek film or show. And the biggest kicker came in the form that the fan films could only raise a max of $50,000 for the creation of their fan films. The rules did seem to target Axonar predominantly, and it does go a long way towards shutting down most other fan films that might have had their eyes set on making really good-looking, quote, feature films, or even web series. It is a debate that could rage for years whether fans have the right to make their own films that could rival large feature-length productions. It's not anything that can be solved in the near future, but hopefully, there will come a day when large corporations productions will look to these creative individuals as a well of inspiration and creativity, instead of the pariahs they sometimes think they are.
0: based on experience, I mean, you know over a quarter of a century experience in the industry, what advice would you give from the experiences you've had, You know particularly with your with your recent um, film you're working on, Thanks in our case.
4: You mean in terms of, of making a fan film or just making a film in general?
0: Um, what one of each. So making a fan film and then making a film in general?
4: Well, I think my advice would both be the same. I mean, I highly recommend making movies, but making movies is is very hard. It's interdisciplinary, and it requires three-dimensional thinking, to quote, you know, a Star Trek idea. Um, and, you know, I highly encourage – the technology is such now that it's it's really easy to make a very professional-looking movie. And people can make some really fantastic stuff, and, and I, I would suggest if you want to make a film, go do it. Mark Duplass, uh, the filmmaker, he gives like a keynote speech somewhere. You can look it up. But you know he makes, the, he makes the, uh, the point that if you want to be a filmmaker, why aren't you shooting a film on the weekends with your friends? Why aren't you writing a script and going out and making movies? It's just like if you want to be a writer, why aren't you writing? Or you want to be a musician, why aren't you playing? I think if you want to be a filmmaker, learn all you can learn about the craft and go out there and do it. And I would say the same about making a fan film. Um, You know, it depends what you want to do with that fan film. But there's been this really weird thing that I don't understand at all in the fan community talking about, well, fan films, it should really just be all about, you know, friends getting together and playing Star Trek. And I'm like, what? Like, are you telling me that you're going to make a movie, but you're not going to make it good? That you're intentionally not going to try and make it as good as you could make it? Like, somehow it should not be professional here's the thing making a movie presupposes that you have an audience for the film I mean unless you're just planning to watch it with your friends if you're gonna put it on YouTube and expect to have an audience watch your movie watch your work you owe something to your audience your audience demands that they get the best from you no matter what it is because if you're not giving the audience the best why are you making a movie at all
0: I must admit, I'm sort of torn on this topic. On one hand, I can see the side of the copyright holders. Imagine how you would feel if something you created was taken and recreated by someone else, and in a matter or method you felt 1. wasn't upholding the brand of your property, as is the case of Khan's film where he had graphic violence and sex and has always been a children's property, or 2. they actually threatened the success of your series because, frankly, the fan film was better. Ironically enough, Khan's film kind of falls into that category too. It really is a remarkable piece of work, especially when compared to the cheesy and campy TV shows on which it's based. On the other hand, there's no denying the value that fan films bring to a franchise. Take Star Trek, for example. We've gone almost 10 years since the last Star Trek television show, Enterprise, which didn't even last the full seven season run its TNG predecessors all did. Fan films have played a huge role in filling that gap. And it was the fans that kept the original series alive in the first place. It seems not only honorable as a thank you to the fans, but even smart business to develop a system that allows fans to make films while at the same time protect your brand. So why not make a set of realistic and reasonable guidelines that makes everyone happy? The internet has proven that there is amazing talent out there. As more and more noise is created, it's harder and harder to find the signal. Those creative productions that stand above and beyond the rest, whose creators have the talent, passion, and chutzpah to do what's seemingly impossible. The networks and studios can only survive by developing and producing great content. And what better way to cultivate and curate talent for that content than in the fan film community? I believe that the next JJ Abrams will be found in that fan film community. Instead of stomping out his or her creativity, embrace it, encourage it, even empower it. Because by doing the opposite, you not only ultimately hurt your brand, but you're incurring an opportunity cost whose dollar value could be astronomical. I think allowing for the creation of Axanar is not only the smart thing to do, it's the right thing to do. I truly believe that if Star Trek creator himself, Gene Roddenberry, were alive today, he'd be Axonar's biggest fan. If you want to learn more about the Axenar Project, donate, or just give them support, head on over to AxanarProductions.com. There will be a link on the blog post for this episode. And don't be afraid to send a tweet to at @CBS or at ParamountPix to let them know that you support what XNAR is doing. Stay tuned after the credits for an exciting trailer and announcement you won't want to miss. Radio Film School is a production of Dear Dreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by me and co-written and co-produced by Chris Hustlidge. If you're a fan of sci-fi, check out our fellow Podcastica show, The Sci-Fi Movie Podcast. You can find that show, our show, and other great pop culture podcasts at podcastica.com.
4: Rick Berman, the producer of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise said something really interesting. He said he had heard that the two things that built the internet was pornography and Star Trek.
0: (laughs) Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes.
4: Meaning if there wasn't pornography, and if there wasn't Star Trek to incessantly argue about, the internet would not have proliferated the way it did. And I I tend to believe it.
0: And speaking of music, when you need to license mainstream music for legal use in your video productions, or if you need to find amazing tunes that span a wide range of genres, Look no further than songfreedom.com. Songfreedom has a huge library of songs from every genre. And they're your best source in the U.S. to license music from mainstream artists like the Lumineers, American Authors, One Republic, Maroon 5, and more. They even have oldies but goodies. Sign up for a new account and you'll get a free standard license worth $30 when you go to songfreedom.com radio. We thank Songfreedom again for their support. When you visit or support our sponsors, you support the show.
4: Because I spent my early fledgling days on the internet on BBS servers back in the late 80s. All I did was discuss Star Trek for days and and months and
0: years. And all this time we thought it was Al Gore. I know, right? (laughs) Another great way you can support the show is becoming a Daredreamer FM Premium Member. Premium Membership helps keep the show going and putting out great weekly content. For a monthly price, about the same as a large cup of gourmet blended coffee, you not only support the show, but you get access to eBooks, templates, bonus episodes, and other resources to help you grow in your craft and career. Go to daredreamer.fm join to learn more. If you liked this episode and everything else we're doing on Radio Film School, it would really help us out if you'd beam on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Those reviews not only help us be found by other listeners, it helps us know what we're doing is worthwhile in helping people. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. If you like this episode, share it on Twitter or email it to all your sci-fi geek friends and family members. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Until next time, live long and prosper. Hey all you Lady Filmmakers out there, it's time to get in formation. Soon we will launch a brand new segment on the show. It's going to be a follow up to the women in film series we did in season 1. This season we've kicked it up a notch. We're not only going to have a podcast series, but we're also going to release a short film documentary series based around the panel discussion we filmed in early June. This is where you come in. Part of the film series will include submissions from female filmmakers. I hope all you ladies out there who fancy yourselves directors and DPs will submit something. You can sign up for our email list at daredreamer.fm to be notified when we start taking submissions. In the meantime, here's the current incarnation of the trailer for your listening enjoyment. As a podcast listener, you get to hear it early. A lot of work has gone into this. I hope you'll join us for the ride in the journey. So stay tuned.
2: I think the biggest challenge and also the biggest failure that I've had in this business has been the lack of willingness to pat myself on the back and tell people what I was responsible for and claim it.
0: I also <laughs> then had a female producer who called me on the phone and she was from another studio and she said to me you're more valuable than you think and I go what do you mean and she said when I interview girls they often take the first offer well, I could travel till my feet were
1: sore Till my knees were weak
2: I feel like it's unfortunate to suggest to a woman that she should be other than herself in order to get ahead what see man's eyes.
0: and she said 95 percent of the time the women come in and they say thank you thank you I'm so grateful for the job
2: and the men come in and they negotiate hard for the higher pay
5: what kind of man are you
2: and what I've seen work in this industry is, particularly with men, is when they do something that they they claim it and they let everyone know that they are responsible for it. And it doesn't matter how small. All the women, and there are a ton of women in The Walking Dead, mm-hmm. and they're over 40, mm-hmm. and they're all different shapes and sizes, and they are badass. If we are to act like a man and be more aggressive, we are then automatically put in the, oh, that's a bitch. Once you start acting like a man, you're you're penalized for acting like a man. And And as an individual coming into the industry, and you're trying to make a decision on what story to pursue, make it authentic, but also make it something that's not being done you know, a thousand times over. But I think that stuff rises to me and, and pops to me when people find a way to speak their voice really clearly. And I think you're certainly not gonna do it by chasing trends or chasing right. what you think is going to mm. be. right. That's the way to not do it. At least three times, boys came up to me and said, you have such a long, thin neck, I just wanna strangle it. And the award for non sequitur. <laughs> no, it's not non sequitur, but <laughs> when it's just it came like a yeah, yeah. sexual. Yes, it's not just an entertainment-related issue. It's a world issue, and if we were more caring about each other and the people who worked with us, then the world would be a better place. Yes, we need to address it within our industry, but it's just something that needs to be addressed worldwide.
0: You're listening
4: to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression.